When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I have a new segment on my Tuesday episodes called Read-Alike Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes if you would like to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes and early reads with prepub author chats. For March, there are two books, Colleen Oakley's new book, The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise, and Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Sally Page about The Keeper of Stories. After studying history at university, Sally moved to London to work in advertising. In her spare time, she studied floristry at night school and eventually opened her own flower shop. She came to appreciate that flower shops offer a unique window into people's stories, and she began to photograph and write about this floral life in a series of nonfiction books. In her debut novel, The Keeper of Stories, Sally combines her love of history and writing with her abiding interest in the stories people have to tell. She now lives in Dorset. I hope you enjoy our conversation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome, Sally. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me, Cindy. 
I am so glad you are here because I absolutely loved The Keeper of Stories and I cannot wait to talk about it. Well, that is lovely. Um, It's always good to talk about my book. So delighted to be here. Well, and you just celebrated a big publishing milestone, 250,000 books sold. And I understand since you had that milestone that actually it's closer to 300,000 now. That is just amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And I think uh, what has made me so happy is this is a book, it's my debut novel. It's a book that has grown through reader's word of mouth. So that is particularly a particularly lovely thing for me as a writer to know that you are connecting with people. Absolutely. And so because your book is just now publishing in the US in January, but it published in the UK before, when did it publish in the UK? It came out in the spring, so nearly a year ago now, but it was my first book. It was within part of HarperCollins, but a very small imprint, and it didn't really have much of a budget behind it. So when my agent was trying to sell it overseas, there wasn't a lot of interest. I'm an unknown, really. But over time, because it has grown, because it's become a bit of a phenomenon in the UK, Um, They've now sold it in 21 countries, and I'm absolutely delighted it's going to be in the US. So obviously, I really hope uh, readers uh, in the US enjoy it. Oh, they will. When I posted on Instagram about it, a number of people were like, oh, that's in my pile. And a number of people were like, oh, I've already read it and loved it. And all the reviews on Goodreads are so good. I am sure it's going to take off. It's just such a wonderful story. I must admit, when uh, people first started posting about my book, I wouldn't look at the reviews because I was thinking, oh my gosh, what if people don't like it? And it was a friend of mine who actually just read me some. She said, you've got to hear this. <laughs> so now I'm, you know, I'm just absolutely delighted. I think that's actually a great way to do it because even though people talk all the time about don't tag authors in negative reviews, don't make unkind comments and tag them, people still are so clueless and do that. There's no need for that at all. So I have only seen glowing reviews, but I know sometimes, you know, people can just be unkind. So having somebody filter it for you is a great idea. Mm, no. And uh, I now have looked at some of um, there very, very occasionally there'll be a negative comment. And one of the things that has come up is that it's a story that takes a while to get into. But actually, I think that's a fair point. I and mean, other people have said it's, you know, they haven't been able to put the book down. But I think because I'm writing about a woman who is the keeper of stories, she collects people's stories, you have to illustrate what stories she's collecting, which means that, you know, it takes a while to go, oh, yeah, right. So there's that story and that story. And it does come together. But I would just please say to readers, stick with it. I didn't think it was slow at all, or that it took any amount of time to get going. I literally sat down started reading, fell in love with Janice. And I love the dog, Decius, that she kind of becomes the keeper of or the minder for. And I just thought it was such a wonderful story. But before we dive into anything else, why don't you give me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet? Well, it's a book that is based on the idea that everyone has a story to tell, which is something that is dear to my heart, because I do think, and I'm sure uh, your listeners will know this, you meet people and you're chatting and they suddenly tell you something and you think, oh my goodness, I wouldn't have expected that. And what I thought about was a woman who didn't think she had a story to tell or certainly not one she was prepared to share. And what would she do? And I had this idea of somebody who collected other people's stories 
to try and make sense of her life. She's in a, a difficult time in her life and she does have secrets. So she's she's a cleaner. She uh, was a very good cleaner. So she can choose really who she wants to clean for. But she comes across one woman, a very tricky woman. But this woman is the first person who really presses her for her story. And that's where the book starts to really take off. Well, I loved the idea that she was the keeper of stories and that even though she's this phenomenal cleaner, she gets to each house and she starts cleaning and then they're like, come have a cup of coffee, have some tea, you know, and they want to talk with her and tell them whatever it is they want to tell her. And I just thought that, you know, that is interesting because we all do have stories and sometimes we don't necessarily think we do. And so she was really resisting the idea that she had her own story. Also, I think with Janice, she is a humble uh, woman who underestimates herself. But because she is uh, she's not a loud, uh, you know, or outstanding character in some ways that people do confide in her. She's that quiet person that people want to tell their story to. And so she is a, a sort of a good vessel for, for stories and she makes very good use of them. She does. And in addition to focusing on stories, there's so many other themes throughout the book, the importance of community, intergenerational relationships, finding your own path and reckoning with the past. You weave a lot in. Yes, I think it really comes from stories. But you, if, if you start with stories, that will take you to lots of different places. And I very much wanted to write about how you find within the ordinary, you find the extraordinary, because that has certainly been my experience of people is that there's a lot of, you know, good people out there doing their best. And sometimes obviously that's not always reflected in the news we hear, but I wanted to be a bit of a champion for that. What about the intergenerational relationships? I feel like that's becoming a more and more popular storyline. I think maybe as the way society has moved where people are farther away from their relatives and their grandparents and all of that, that some of those things have broken down a little bit. And so I feel like I'm seeing that theme in stories more and I just love it. And it clearly works well in your story. I think I've been very influenced by the women I've known because I do have friends of very different ages. I'm a woman of 61, but I have friends who are in their 40s and I have friends who are in their 80s. So that definitely resonated with me and I very much wanted to write about it and drew on my own experience. Although I have to say, I don't know anybody who is quite like Mrs. B. But (laughs) (laughs) That was going to be my next question was if you had an inspiration for her or if you created her or how she came about, because she's fantastic. Uh, All the characters really are from my imagination. However, the stories that Janice collects are based on truth, most of them. So when I had the idea for the book, I spent a year before I even started writing, researching stories. So I spoke to my friends, acquaintances, family and said, have you ever come across somebody where they've sort of, you know, really surprised you by their story? So I collected all those stories, obviously with their permission, and I included them in the book. Obviously, I changed them sometimes to fit the narrative or to mask whose story it was. But I love the idea that woven within the book are true stories, because I think it is fair to say you just couldn't make up some of the things that we (laughs) hear in real life. 
I think that is so true. And I have this conversation fairly often with authors that the things that are actual stories or actual events that are in their books are often the ones that people say, oh, there's no way that would really happen. And the things that they make up, people are like, oh, yeah, okay. But it is true. Truth is stranger than fiction. It really is. I was talking to a friend the other day about just about some real life circumstance. And I said, if I put that in a book, people wouldn't believe it. So I'm quite interesting as an author trying to get that balance right. And I'll see in author notes sometimes they will say, okay, these things actually are true. And, you know, and these other things I made up just to make sure people understand, okay, this actually did happen. Yes, definitely. And I think uh, with with my books, I thinking about what I want to write in the future and what I've written in the past, because um, I have written more books before this one actually got taken up. I am very interested in history. So I think I will always write contemporary books, but that have a historical thread through them. And of course, that is going to be based on truth. But there again, it's those stories you come across, which make you go, oh my goodness, I didn't, I can't believe that this hasn't been written about or that people don't know about this. And that's the sort of thing I would like to bring up out through my books. And that's the sort of thing I like to read. So that's great. That's good. I like that. <laughs> well, let's talk about the wonderful dog, a fox terrier, correct? A fox terrier called Decius. Who is just so funny. I love the dialogue that Janice ascribes to him. He is just a hoot and you just want to hug him. I, I just, he made the book. I think with Decius, he kind of took over because he came out from a place where Janet is a, you know, a very good cleaner. Why would she clean for this horrible couple who feature in the book? And I thought, well, if they had a really nice dog, then that might keep her coming back each week. So that was the, the starting point. I then looked at lots of different sorts of dogs. I don't actually have a dog. And I think my I'm most proud of is that a lot of Fox Terrier owners have written to me and said, oh, you clearly have a fox terrier and you clearly <laughs> understand fox terriers. But the funny thing was, was once I started writing Decius, I had no idea how much he was going to swear. That literally, <laughs> he completely took over. I had no idea. I was typing away thinking, Decius, your language. Because <laughs> obviously Janice is imagining what he's, or from his expressions, what's going through his mind. But he really kind of wrote himself. And I became very fond of Decius. I did too. And his facial expressions, you know, you just did such a wonderful job of explaining like what he was looking like. And then Janice, you know, ascribing language to him and saying, okay, this is what he's saying now. But oh, just a wonderful character. I, I would have thought you had a dog as well. Now, I'm very proud of the fact that I could ride a dog and not have a dog. I do have some friends who've got a fox terrier and they brought him around so that I could have some photographs uh, with him. But now I don't actually have a dog. Well, what was it like plotting the story out? Because you have a number of characters that interweave together as time goes on. But did you sit down and just write it straight through? Did you write the different characters and then try to put them together? What did that look like? I'm very much a planner when it comes to writing. Uh, my daughter, Libby Page, who is a, an author and she's, you know, has led the way really in terms of, you know, our careers as writers. She's more intuitive. She's a writer with planning. I plan and then the writing sort of takes over. So I did sit down and think, you know, what stories do I want to, for Janice to collect? 
and how did I want the book to pan out? Obviously, within that, sometimes it took a different turn as I was writing it. But yes, I was planning it. And I also had things I wanted to to reflect on about stories, themes like, is it about having one story or do we have many stories? Is it about perhaps a perfect moment in your life or something you've achieved? So there were things I wanted to mull over as I was writing. So I did have a way of weaving those and planning them within the book. Because I would think that would be complicated initially. So planning it out probably helps a lot. And you mentioned your daughter, Libby Page. And I just want to say, I absolutely loved her book, The Lido, which in the US then became Mornings with Rosemary when it came out in paperback. And I just recently highlighted it because I've started a new series called Read Alike Requests. Someone will send in a book that they love, and then I will provide them three suggestions for a similar book. And I provided Mornings with Rosemary as one of my suggestions because I just loved it. Oh, that's lovely to hear. I'm obviously incredibly proud of her, particularly because she wrote that book when she was 23. And she's now written, um, well, three, four other books. But she was always a writer. As we, as she was growing up, she just wrote. She used to go up to her bedroom after school and she wrote. That's what she did. And even from a sort of eight-year-old, I was reading her work and going, oh, my goodness. And she was going, but you're my mum. You're going to say it's good. And I was going, no, this is really good. So I was never surprised that she became an author. But in a funny way, it stopped me writing because I, you know, in our family, Libby was the writer. I had done some nonfiction books. I'd uh, photographed and written books about flower shops, you know, following the seasons and the flowers through an English country flower shop. But I didn't realize I was a creative writer. But once I started, I couldn't stop. It was like it was unleashed within me. And I just love it. I was curious about that because you started writing fiction a little later, but I saw you had the nonfiction books and I was wondering how you made the switch or actually just added it, I guess. You don't have to switch. You can keep writing nonfiction as well, but how you decided to write fiction. I think with the the writing fiction, maybe Libby's success, Libby's journey had influenced me. So maybe subconsciously it was in the back of my mind, thinking about stories, thinking about writing. But I literally woke up one morning and had an idea for a book in my head, which wasn't The Keeper of Stories. It was a completely different book, but it just was like, uh, it, it, it lit me up. It was like, oh my goodness, I want to write this. And I wrote it and I wrote a book in about three months. I sat and I wrote it. Um, it's still there on my computer. I go back to it occasionally and I have to confess it's not very good, but <laughs> I have a lot of other books I've written, which I, you know, are, I know are going to come out. But this one, I keep looking back at it and thinking, nah, that really is not very good, but maybe one day, but I will always be grateful to that book because it got me started and it taught me how much I love to write. I think it's wonderful when people write at any age and it's something new to you to do fiction in your 60s. And I think people should try new things all the time. And I love seeing all these authors that have fiction debuts when they're not in their 20s and 30s. I think that's true. I, um, Anybody who's listening who's older will know you experience so much in your life. And so something like writing, you have so much more to draw upon because you've lived longer. And I think I would say to anybody, uh, you can do anything at any stage in your life. I think that's exactly right. 
And I think the longer you live, as you said, the more stories you have, the more you've experienced. And I love reading about characters of a wide range of ages as well. And I think sometimes people, as they get a little older, are tackling those type of characters more. I think so. And I'm not sure about the US, but in the UK, the people who are the big readers are women over 40. So your audience, you have a big audience who are interested, not, you know, not, not always in older characters, but not necessarily always in younger characters. They um, might well be drawn to somebody like Janice, who is, you know, slightly older, middle-aged woman who has more of a history. I think that's exactly right. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing this one? Desi is his language, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I think how much I loved it, which of course is a lovely thing to discover, isn't it? That you're doing something you really enjoy. Having said that, as I was writing it, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a, a publisher. So you are writing in isolation. But no, just the sheer joy of writing was, I think, the thing that surprised me the most. Did it help because Libby's published a number of books to at least understand the path to publication? Very much so. Knowing how she went about it, knowing how the industry worked through Libby really helped. And she was very encouraging. Having said that, you know, Paige as a surname is very common. So when I was applying to agents and then publishers, nobody knew I was her mom. Um, which I'm really proud of. So I went through what they call the slush pile, where actually an agent takes you on, not because somebody's recommended you, but because they've worked through, you know, your work has come in and they chose to represent you. I can see that because I really do think this story resonates with so many different people. And anyone who picks it up is going to find something in it that they think, oh, I learned from this, or I love these characters, or these are just a wonderful group of people to spend time with. I can see where an agent would pick it right up. I think what's interesting, Cindy, is that you know it took me a long, long time to get uh, an agent. And when my lovely agent did send out the Keeper of Stories, there was only one publisher who offered for it. And that was from a very small imprint of HarperCollins. And actually, uh, when we were at the celebration a couple of days ago, because it had sold, it sold so many copies, it was lovely to be able to acknowledge um, the editor, Charlotte Ledger, who was the woman who spotted it. And also, I think for her to know that she saw it, she bought it when nobody else was interested. Yes. And you can go back to all those people and say, ha. Huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but that is wonderful when someone takes a chance, you know, and I think that's great. And it's wonderful that it paid off for her as well. And she did say to me in the lift on the way down, she said, I do love it when you remind people I was the only one who. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure she does because she's like, thank you very much. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think the publishing world is just so interesting because you just can't always quite figure out how's it going to work, what's going to happen. And a book like yours and, you know, a number of others I can think about, they just sort of end up with a life of their own, just keep chugging along and. All of a sudden, you're at 300,000 copies, which is quite amazing in this time because, you know, people are often happy to sell 10,000 copies. Mm. Now, I, well, I can tell you, I'm absolutely delighted. And then at Christmas, the big thing to have on your book is that you're a Sunday Times bestseller. And the two weeks of Christmas, I became a Sunday Times bestseller. And that was my um, agent's assistant was sent me a lovely email and she said, 
I was trying to tell my husband what a huge deal this is. You're a debut novelist. The book came out in the spring, so it didn't come out around Christmas time. You're in the Christmas bit where there are, it's so competitive. She said, I was trying to tell my husband what an amazing feat that is. Um, And so that was something I had never expected. And I was just overjoyed with that. Well, I think it does make a great gift. Like if you're looking for a book for somebody for the holidays, this is perfect because it has everything in it. I do think very early on, I could see that it was being gifted because on Amazon, there is a little chart where they look at the books that are most often given. And I was really, I was number two on that. And I wasn't, you know, I was still really unknown. And I think because it's a book about, it's about friendship, it's about hope. It does deal with some difficult issues, but it is about hope. It's about the ordinary being extraordinary, that I hope it makes people feel good about things and that that is something that they would want to pass on to other friends and their family. So I think that's probably why it did, did so well at Christmas. I think so as well. Well, I always love to talk about titles and covers. Your cover is just beautiful. And once you read the book, you really then are able to pull out all the different things like Decius and the key and the music and the butterflies, all of it. And I think they did such a stellar job on your cover. Do you just love it? And is your cover the same in the UK as the US? Yes, it is. And oh my goodness, it took us so long to come up with that cover. And there again, I'm very grateful to my editor, Charlotte Ledger, because we saw so many covers. And every time I saw a cover, I was thinking, I don't like this. I don't know how to say yet again, I don't like this. But luckily, Charlotte was of the same view. She said, no, this is not what I, this isn't what the right positioning, it's not good enough. And she kept pushing back and pushing back. And when we saw this cover, we were all delighted. We were, we went, that's the cover. That is, it's just a beautiful cover. Um, And I think it will, you know, when I do subsequent books, I'm sure what will happen is it will be an evolution of that type of cover. And it's interesting in the countries where who've bought the the Keeper of Stories, most that I've seen so far are using variations on that cover. Well, it really does encapsulate the story. And I love that blue, that just deep blue. There's so much talk these days about the cover being important on the book, but also being important digitally when you see it on Instagram, when you see it on Barnes and Noble or wherever you're going to see it, small or large, you're going to know it's your book. Yes. And I think the imprint I'm with are what they call digital first. So um, they really press the ebook and the audio, but they do print a paperback in the UK. But they are, I think where they're particularly good on covers is they understand it has to work as a smaller thumbnail. So sometimes you'll see the most beautiful books in a bookshop, but when you see them as a very small image, it doesn't really work. Whereas one more chapter, my, which is the name of the, the publisher in the UK, um, they realized you, you, you have to work as a thumbnail and then also as a full book. And I think they've got that absolutely spot on. I agree, but it does make it a lot more complicated because you have to be able to have the book work for both. And it doesn't always happen, as you mentioned, but that also has to just be tricky in the design. Yes. And I'm, I was very grateful for the, there was an in-house designer 
who came up with it. And when I eventually met her, I hugged her because I just was oh. <laughs> I love that. You're like, we finally got there. Thank you. <laughs> well, what about the title? I had a very different title. And that title was thought up by my editor, Charlotte Ledger. She said when she read the book, that title came to her mind. And when she came to me with it, I went, yes, absolutely. I think I'd got something about a story collector. And she said something about the store, the keeper of stories, it's softer. And it, it's a sort of big idea that somebody is a keeper of stories. Um, so I was very happy to go with, with her suggestion. And Janice is a keeper of stories. Very much so. Yes, she is. Well, this has been so much fun. And I really could talk about your book all day. But I guess we can't do that. So before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Um, I've read Still Life by Sarah Winman, which is a just a beautiful book. And as a as a writer, you always want to push yourself. And when I read Sarah Winman's books, her language and her writing is exquisite. It's like eating delicious food. And it makes me feel like I want to do better. I want to write better. It's set in Florence and London, and it has extraordinary characters in it, but they're all completely believable. And it is a book that is, it's about hope as well as having fantastic themes in it about history of art and globe making. I mean, it's just a a huge book, but it's wonderful. It is a big book. I have it. And I always think, okay, I'm going to pick it up now because people rave about it, but then it is big. It is. And all I'd say to you is if you struggle in the first couple of chapters, keep going because I, uh, like you, everybody recommended it. And when I started it, I was like, oh, and I read a few chapters and I put it down and I, I nearly didn't pick it up again. And I'm so glad I did because it is an absolute beauty of a book. Okay. That's good to know. I actually had started it and struggled a little bit. And she doesn't use quotation marks, which normally doesn't bother me. But for some reason, it was really hiccuping me when I was trying to read her book. Yeah. But it sounds like I need to just go back to it and, and push through those initial chapters. Okay. That's good to know. Well, I think I said this when I went on Houston Life here in Houston about your book when I talked about it, but it was one of those stories that when I finished it, I just literally hugged it. I just loved it. So thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, Sally. It was just delightful to get to hear more about the behind the scenes. Well, thank you, Cindy. It's been really nice talking to you. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.